When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Avengers, Age of Ultron. He's garbage, folks. Is it an alligator or a crocodile? I don't know the difference, and at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. Look at that. That is a werewolf. What is up, everyone? Welcome to Denny Geek Presents Marvel Standing Live, where each week we give you the deepest possible dives on all the goings-on in the MCU, Marvel Comics, and beyond. I'm your host, Mike Cicchini, the Editor-in-Chief at DennyGeek.com, and with me for all time and always, we've got Denny Geek TV Editor Alec Bajali and Denny Geek News and Features Editor Kirsten Howard, and it's a big one, folks. We're talking about what I have to imagine is probably the most anticipated Marvel movie since Avengers Endgame. It is Black Panther Wakanda Forever, a movie that just boasted the biggest box office opening in November history, a movie that is looking like the second biggest opening weekend of the year after another Marvel movie, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And interestingly, like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, Wakanda Forever has kind of like split folks down the middle here. I thought this was going to be one of those critic-proof Marvel jams, and it seems, incorrectly I might add, that it wasn't. Uh, So let's get right to it and start seeing what everybody thought about this movie. Alex, since I never pick on you first, why don't you tell us what you thought? Well, wait a minute. Hold on a minute. We haven't done a Marvel stand-up live in a while, and I'm already screwing it up. (laughs) Kirstie? You know what to do. <laughs> in Marvel's Black Panther Wakanda Forever, T'Challa has died and his family and nation mourn his loss. After gifted young engineer Riri Williams invents a machine that can detect vibranium and it is discovered on the ocean floor, it causes a rift between Wakanda and the underwater land of Talakan and its mutant leader Namor, who seeks to kill Williams as a warning to those who would mess with Talakan. The friction between Wakanda and Namor intensifies when Riri becomes aligned with Wakanda and eventually Namor and his soldiers invade Wakanda and cause widespread damage and fear, killing Queen Ramonda in the process. Shuri manages to synthesize the heart-shaped herb and becomes the new Black Panther after seeing a vision of Killmonger, but she reaches the same conclusion as T'Challa when he sought vengeance for the death of their father and spares Namor's life in exchange for a truce. In a mid-credits scene, it's revealed that T'Challa had a secret son with Nakia, who is also called T'Challa. As we can tell just from that synopsis, There's a lot in this movie, and I know that some of the criticisms have focused on it being a little bit overstuffed, and I kind of get that. But let's go back to my original plan of attack here. (laughs) Alec, why don't you tell us what you thought? You know, if if there were ever a Marvel movie to grade on a curve, and and we don't necessarily have to do that because Disney is a big company filled with big boys and girls um, who are fully in, in charge of their own destinies. But I, I still feel like if there were a movie to like kind of bend over backwards for, it would be this one just because of the, the really unfortunate behind the scenes events that went into making it. I, I'm willing to meet Black Panther Wakanda forever halfway in a lot of things. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't really work for me. Uh, I feel like it suffers from a lot of the same issues that the more recent Phase 4 Marvel movies have, which is kind of a, a lack of a sense of purpose and also some sloppy storytelling there, here and there, some repeating of itself. 
um, some bloat. It just, a lot of the fundamentals are off with this movie. Uh, I will say, though, I feel a little bit better about it now than I did uh, right after the credits wrapped uh, when I saw it last week. And I feel like that really just comes down to two aspects in particular. Uh, I feel like if you asked Ryan Coogler or Kevin Feige if they could only nail two aspects of this movie, what would they want them to be? I think they might answer, we want to make sure it's a fitting tribute to Chadwick Boseman, and we also want to make sure we get the character of Namor right. And in that sense, I I feel like they did that. I feel like they got those two important things down, at least. Um, and I'm glad they did. They pulled that off well. However, the movie around it is still just not good, unfortunately. You're wrong, but Kirsty. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have uh, complex thoughts about the movie, honestly, um, which, to be clear, is not particularly aimed at me, unless we forget no one should really give a shit what I think. Uh, but starting with the positive, this is rammed with terrific performances, especially Angela Bassett as Queen Ramonda and Lupita as Nakia. And the costume design is superb. Um, Talakan is wonderfully realized on screen and Tenok Huerta, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, makes for a good and sympathetic villain as Namor. I thought Shuri seeing Killmonger was an excellent twist. And I also like that we got to dig a little deeper on what's going on with Val here, as uh, she's been so mysterious for so long. And her line, like, I dream of that happening, you know, about the US having the vibranium was superb. And Julia just delivered it, you know. Um, Ludwig Göransson's score is great too, although weirdly seems to borrow a motif from Tom and Andy's Mothman Prophecy score, which I'm sure distracted no one in the world but me. Um, but I found the movie didn't quite work for me either. And yeah, it did feel overstuffed. Although they were like really sensitive to Chadwick's legacy, it did feel like there was a, a hole in the movie that they weren't quite able to fill. And indeed, the movie is somewhat about that. Uh, some of the scenes, it was quite hard to see what was happening as they either weren't lit particularly well or been darkened uh, in editing. And some of the CG was a little ropey. Uh, I found Namor's ankle wings a little silly here, which I thought they looked quite ludicrous in the trailer. So that's just something that didn't win me over ultimately. Uh, Riri Williams' introduction didn't feel as fleshed out as I probably would have liked, uh, but we will get the Ironheart show later on, of course. Um, the editing in parts was very choppy. Um, one scene that specifically stands out is when uh, Namor was narrating the flashbacks of his mother's life and his birth. And he's like, you know, my mother was afraid to take the potion because it might hurt her unborn baby. And it just very briefly cuts her refusing to take it like, I oh, know she is, I'm all right. And then it goes back to Namor, which got like an unintentional laugh in the, the cinema I was in. Um, at the end, it, it felt like it wrapped up quite quickly. Everyone's sort of going back to their business and not really seeing the scope of the fallout, which I thought was a shame. Um, going back to that incredible first trailer we first saw for the movie, there's one shot in it where we see Nakia from behind on the beach. And I remember saying, maybe they're showing her from behind because she's like pregnant with T'Challa's child and they don't want to reveal that. And then I was like, no, nah, but they won't do that because that would be really corny. So the mid credit scene here, I was like, oh, okay. You did it. All right, cool. Um, so a mixed bag for me. I would probably put this in my mid-tier Marvel, um, under Eternals, but above Ant-Man and the Wasp. But to be clear, I did like it a lot more than Doctor Strange do, which remains at the bottom. I loved this movie. And usually, folks, you know that I'm the one kind of like looking for looking for holes to punch in these. And like, yes, it is. It's overlong. And yes, it is overstuffed. And yes, like the questionable labor practices uh, involved with Marvel's uh, VFX department clearly continued on this movie. But none of that bothered me when I was sitting in the theater. It did not feel long for me. The pacing almost reminded me at times of something like Empire Strikes Back, where it's like, it's like, look, we just got to kind of get from one place to the next, to the next, to the next. Like, there's like kind of a chase element to the movie, uh, which 
is kind of difficult to pull off. Like, you know, for example, Age of Ultron tried to pull that off. And my thoughts about that movie are well documented in the opening credits of this very show. I guess what it comes down to, though, is it possible that I was just like emotionally manipulated by the power of that funeral scene that opens the movie? Yes, it's possible. Um, But that was really powerful, like really powerful and really moving and works as both something, you know, that's part of like just the in-story world and part of the, the, the flawless, impeccable world building that defined the first movie as well. You know what I mean? Like Wakanda is one of the most fleshed out, well-realized fictional locations in cinematic history, as far as, as far as I'm concerned. And a lot of that work was done in the first movie, but that work is continued here. Um, you know, and that funeral is, is just like another, it is another element of that. So between those first five minutes and then the last five minutes of that post credit scene, like, like that, that was it for me. Like, like anything else that happened in between, I, I, it was it was tough for me to be as objective as I ordinarily might be. The big thing for me, because this movie doesn't really have a proper lead, you know, like this is Shuri's story in a lot of ways, but it's so much about the rest of that supporting cast stepping up. Musna and Lee in the comments right now are specifically talking about Angela Bassett. And yes, I can absolutely see an Oscar nomination for Angela Bassett. Like the costumes, absolutely Oscar worthy. The score, absolutely Oscar worthy. But this is a movie about the people around T'Challa and how that passing affects them more than it is about how one individual in Wakanda kind of steps up to try and replace T'Challa. Outside of that, it's the Namor story, folks. And that is impeccable. Absolutely impeccable. I will accept the ankle wing criticism. Uh, <laughs> it's nice that they wanted to do this, you know, this important piece of fealty to Marvel's very first character, you know, but um, I get it. I'll accept it. Didn't bother me. But like for all the other things they streamline when adapting these characters, you know, Maybe that's uh, maybe that's something they could have lost, but I mean, uh, Tenoch Huerta it looks like the like the char- like just the find of the year. Uh, I couldn't be happier with Namor. I want this guy to appear in everything going forward. Now I think the MCU is a much more interesting place uh, for his arrival. So yeah, I I certainly liked it a lot more than you two, and I'm a little surprised that at you know how your reactions are kind of more the predominant ones uh, than, than what I expected for this. I mean, I was surprised too when we started seeing the reviews coming out and initially they were very, very positive. And then we were watching the Rotten Tomatoes score like drop uh, incrementally as uh, more mixed reviews were coming in and people were saying, you know, it was messy, comparing it to Age of Ultron. And I thought, well, maybe it's just that expectations were so high but I went in this the sort of mid expectations, not, neither high nor low, and I was still found it a bit underwhelming. Yeah, well, what Alex said about grading this on a curve, I mean, if if ever a Marvel movie was made under impossible circumstances, it's this. I mean, aside from just the the the, the expectations around, you know, how do you pay tribute to Chadwick Boseman? Um, how do you replace just an absurd, absurd talent like that? You know, I don't think we fully appreciate because Marvel is such a great star making machine, you know, like, like they really are so great at rehabilitating like older careers or putting, you know, putting careers in new contexts or really jumpstarting. I mean, look at Chris Evans, for example, like really illuminating talent that I think we take for granted sometimes that that none of that needed to happen for Chadwick Boseman. Like Chadwick Boseman was a transformative generational talent independent of T'Challa and T'Challa just kind of gave him the largest possible stage to do it on at the right time. It sometimes gets a little lost in this. So the movie does kind of suffer a little bit from his absence, but how do you, how do you do that? You know, like, how do you fix that? You can't. I got to give it a little bit of a pass. And then there's the fact that, you know, Letitia Wright was 
seriously injured, apparently, during the making of this movie. She was injured and had to go home for a while and recuperate, and it threw filming off by months at a time. And the more reports that have come out in the wake of that, like the more serious it seems that those injuries like were. So, I mean, on top of the, the already unreal expectations and then the death of its star and then like a, what might have been the near death of its co-star, this movie had a tough road, folks. And I, I think it's as, as good as it could possibly be. And that's not even to mention any COVID difficulties. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I feel maybe a lot of kind of older school uh, pop culture film critics would disagree with grading any movie on a curve just because, you know, context shouldn't matter. It's the final result. But I, I, in like the mass information age where we know everything about everything, that just doesn't seem realistic or fair to me. Um, like I can't go into this movie divorced from the knowledge that I have about what happened behind the scenes going into it. And it just seems kind of unfair and silly to pretend otherwise. Speaking again about how talented Chadwick Boseman was and, and the handful of scenes, just like a handful of quick flashbacks that feature T'Challa in this movie, really, like, it's almost astonishing because at that point, they come up a little bit later on, and I think, sure, he's remembering her time with her brother. At that point, I was a bit checked out from the movie, and I was pretty sure, I mean, we're like two hours into it at this point, I was pretty sure I don't like this, <laughs> but it, when he, even when he, when he just like pops back up for like three seconds at a time smiling, I'm like, wow, what a movie star. Like, yeah, I, yeah. That's what like the, the rest of this movie was missing. Like it just, this unbelievable human presence just like vibrating through the film stock itself. It almost like jolted me awake. I'm like, oh, wow, that's that's what we need here. Uh, and But we can't have it, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. The same in the with the Marvel uh, fanfare at the beginning, right? It's just, it's quiet. It's just Chadwick and it's really affecting. But and those scenes sort of bookend the movie. I don't know how this movie could have filled that hole in the in the middle <laughs> well enough uh, to not be just slightly uh, heartbreaking. You know, um, uh, there was clearly a lot of grief going on here. You know, behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and it's a very like that's why I say I have very complex thoughts about it. Yeah. And I mean, like, look, there is a movement online, like of people who think that they should have just recast Chala and uh, look, it's, it's a franchise. It's a corporate IP. You know, I, I understand, I understand the desire for that, but even if they had done that, like let's set everything else aside. If Chadwick Boseman had left the role, if Chadwick Boseman was still with us and had not died tragically and unexpectedly, and, you know, just had a contract dispute or whatever and had to leave the role. This would still be an impossible role to recast. No disrespect whatsoever to Terrence Howard as Rhodey. You know what I mean? Like, this is not a, you know, you bring in, you know, you bring in Don Cheadle to replace Terrence Howard situation. Like, Chadwick Boseman was a generational talent. You cannot replace somebody like that. Certainly not, like, like right in the next movie and expect nobody to nobody to notice. I mean, like, look how how almost impossible it has been for people to move past Christopher Reeve as Superman, a role that took place 44 years ago and and that he only played in 1.5 good movies. You know what I mean? Like, and ever since then, every single interpretation of the character has been measured against that performance. T'Challa is is that times five, you know? It, it, it was a no-win situation. And I think they I think they handled it uh as certainly tastefully and I think the movie did the best they could with it as well. I agree. I think um the weirdly and I, I don't know why, but that, the weirdly that silent Marvel intro fanfare is was the most powerful moment of it all to me. Mm. Um because uh, like of all the ways that they go about honoring him in this movie, we have the opening funeral, the the brief flashbacks, the post credit scene, the the Marvel fanfare. But I, I don't know. Maybe it's like maybe it's just something as cynical as like seeing an actual like corporate logo taking this seriously makes made me realize like oh, like oh yeah like like this is the, the this this loss is so so enormous that it's even like triumphing over triumphing over um 
<laughs> the Disney Corporation's corporate identity. Like it's maybe something that was as cynical as that for me, but like it just—it's also just so stark in the in the theater with just no sound. Muslim made a good point in the comments just now, uh, as she often does. Hello, Muslim. She says, "I think that hole that we feel in the film is deliberate, and it's and it's true. I mean, like I think they wrote the movie." around that sense of absence you know like yeah. i think that's a tough thing to capture and i think i think the cast as a whole captures it like i think all of their performances i can't describe this very well uh don k who reviewed it for denigeek.com go to denigeek.com slash marvel to read that folks you know tried to like try to explain it you know what i mean where you could feel both the actual real world grief you know, of the actors themselves, in addition to the, you know, the kind of, you know, quote unquote, fictional grief that they were trying to portray. I don't know. I think maybe uh, history will be kind to this movie. Like, just like we've said that history will be kind to Eternals. I think as we kind of get away from the expectations that came with this film and everything else, I think history will be kind to Wakanda forever. I can't believe you guys don't like the ankle wings. I <laughs> love the ankle wings. It is such a, such a fascinating, like physical dynamic I've not seen on screen before where like to fly, it's like he's rollerblading. Yes. He's just, like push one ankle, right? Left ankle, left. Um, I love that. It also, I feel like a lot of times Marvel has shied away from the goofier aspects of its comic characters when adapting um, to live action. Namor was, you know, perfect combination of goof and cool. <laughs> like, I, I, I think they should lean into it more, turn it into a strength rather than shy away from it. Like, yeah, absolutely. Bring on the weird little ankle wings. He was a, a tremendous presence in this movie. You know, he, he really is a a scene stealer so uh, i think they did right by the casting here for sure i could not imagine any other way to you know our debate about the ankle wings aside and i don't have an issue with the ankle wings all i was doing i was just kind of like i i, I i'm just kind of meeting kirsty halfway here with their complaint <laughs> about it because okay i could see it like if you got to streamline something i guess that's the thing that maybe you could do but I cannot imagine any other way for them to approach Namor on screen. Like, and it's it's going to be almost impossible for me to open a comic featuring Namor now and not imagine this presence. This is the right way to do it. Not evil, noble, single-minded, you know, and a and a and a son of a bitch, man. Like, like, like a tough bastard, like somebody that you do not cross i love it like for, for folks who don't know you know we joke about how much the staff at denny geek is playing marvel snap right now and before he went into the screening alec is like i can't wait to learn more about namor since i've been playing his card so much the thing that folks have to understand about namor is this is marvel's first character marvel comics number one in 1939 is half and half about namor and the original human torch who had nothing to do with uh you know, nothing to do with the Fantastic Four Human Torch. But like, it's like, we're going to make a guy who like all he wants to do is mess with the surface dwellers, the, the main character of our flagship comic in 1939. Like this guy was known for flooding Manhattan just to show everybody who was boss. And I'm like, man, how are they going to, how are they going to make Namor like enough of a jerk in these movies and not you know, adhere to the Marvel style and still give him a sense of menace, but still make him somebody that we can root for under the right circumstances. They absolutely did it. From the moment he appears, like he's not necessarily going about it the right way sometimes, but I could get behind it, you know? So like, I want more of Namor and I want more of this approach for other characters in the MCU down the line. Uh, how cool was the reveal of his name? Yes. And that's that's not comic specific, right? Like no, it that, is not. I love when that happens, those little moments of um, something stronger than coincidence or when you have a pre-existing name and you find a new way to uh, put a spin on it. Um, loved that moment. Loved the flashback. Loved. it's he's. That's one of the things that's frustrating about 
the movie's visual style is that Namor appears in sunlight, like in a grand total of two or three scenes. And he looks so great. His costume is so colorful. He's so visually dynamic. And Tena Huerta is awesome. I uh, Any issues I have with this movie, Namor is almost completely exempt from them. Um, aside from in the second half, he gets a little, little squirrely. <laughs> like, I don't know if I totally agree with his approach on how to go about things, uh, but he might be more emotionally compromised at that point. Uh, but yeah, what a find. What a stud. I love, love Namor. <laughs> Kirsty, the one thing I was thinking about the whole time I was watching Namor's story unfold, and I want to know if you agree or not. If they can get this right, they can get Dr. Doom right. Oh, and yeah, I know absolutely. I know that's important to you. I wonder whether that anything would make me happy. <laughs> There's no pleasing me when it comes to Doctor Doom, I fear. <laughs> so I'm uh, I'm already setting myself up for being at least slightly disappointed. And if I'm not, you know, that's great. Actually, one thing <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about, Mike, that I haven't talked to you about yet, and it's it's on a lighter note, so I hope that's okay. Um, but there the the moment of this movie, uh, one of the best moments of this movie for me, um, just in terms of pure, I did like a belly laugh when it happened, was when the movie cut to like Red Hot Chili Peppers banging out on the oh, soundtrack, yeah. right? And I was like, who's listening to this trash ass Red Hot yes. Chili Peppers song? Like, why would you put that on this soundtrack? That's so cheesy. And then like smash cuts to Martin Freeman jogging, listening to it. Of course, the whitest man in the yeah. Yes. <laughs> going to be listening to some old Red Hot Chili Peppers track. Uh, I actually thought that was amazing. Just uh, one of the movies, like genuinely, uh, like gut busting moments. Like because it has a few of them, uh, only a couple of them, because um, of the subject matter. But it, it really did work for me, and I think uh, whoever came up with that should uh, get their own movie and just fill it with moments like that. I believe it was the great Nick Cave who once said. I am forever asking myself, what is this horrible racket? And the answer is always the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> <laughs> just, just the absolute pits, just the absolute pits. And especially coming in a movie and a franchise that as part of its identity has incredible soundtracks just, right. has, just has like masterful song choices and Oscar worthy scores. And then this thing sticks out like a sore thumb. It, it really was, does. It was amazing. <laughs> I think if it only could have been more uh, insane if it was like third eye blind or something like yes. that. It's just something. <laughs> yes. Also, also, or matchbox 20, like, yes. like, yeah, just like also suitably <laughs> awful, but like, but you know what? But this this brings up something else that I love about this movie, and no, and another reason that I think time will be kinder to it. How often do you hear me complain that, like, yes, the MCU is supposed to be light and funny and quippy, but like, also jokes are supposed to be funny and have punchlines. This movie was a perfect example. I think it pulled it off even better than Eternals because it was more balanced in that tone. This is a perfect example of how you can tell a serious, at times, dark and gritty story within the MCU and not feel the need to like nervously look at the camera and be like, are we being funny enough? Like, are we, are we checking all the joke boxes? Because like most of the time, this movie is not like that. Like this movie is closer in tone to a lot of DC movies than it is the MCU at times. And I think that's to its advantage. And then when, you know, when the comedy hits, it's either a gut buster, like the Red Hot Chili Peppers moment, <laughs> or it's more subtle, like just the way Winston Duke delivers like every line as, as M'Baku, you know, like I just, I, I thought, I thought that was perfect. I, I do like how, um, how seemingly inconsequential the uh, the Everett Ross portions of this movie are. Yes. But you still couldn't give them up because you just can't pass up the opportunity to just make fun of him. <laughs> like, like, what is this movie missing if they just completely excise uh, Everett Ross and Valentina out of it? And I don't, I think the answer is not a hell of a lot. Um, so it probably would have been a stronger creative choice, but on some level, I, I, I can't help but admire them saying like, no, we have to make fun of this nerd. 
like we'll sacrifice the th- full 30 minutes of screen time just to maintain that just the punchline about ross and val being married were like i i had to howl with that like that was just great i was it was, it was just a, it was a fun review. it's like of course like <laughs> of course of course these two were married like who who else would have them you know we've talked before about kind of like the geopolitical corner of the mcu and i know you know, this is has not led to a lot of people's favorite MCU entries. You know, uh, Black Panther, Black Widow, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, especially, are very firmly in that. Shang-Chi to a lesser extent, you know, but really we're talking about Falcon and Winter Soldier, Black Widow, and Wakanda Forever. And there's like a definite through line to those. You know, there were little hints and elements of it that popped up in the background of She-Hulk. And we can see how this movie is a stepping stone to Thunderbolts, uh, which, by the way, if you go to denageek.com slash Marvel, there's an excellent article by Tom Chapman that you can check out that helps outline those connections. But like that is kind of my favorite corner of the MCU right now. My little objections about Falcon and the Winter Soldier aside. So seeing this movie play into that and considering that like now it is like Wakanda is a world power in the MCU and, and, and Talokan is going to be a world power in the MCU. And the natural next step here is Latveria arising as a world power in the MCU. I do think it's important from, for the meta story of phase four and phase five. And in that regard, I think that's the most well-developed area of, of the, the current MCU. Am I alone in this? I mean, that should be my favorite in theory. Uh, I, I really like when the MCU goes geopolitical. Unfortunately, the Falcon and Winter Soldier just like took a lot of the, the goodwill there away. Because like the, the, the quote unquote, you might be able to call it almost the Captain America track. Because it kind of technically started with the Winter Soldier. Yeah. When the MCU went super geopolitical. And if you wanted to be like really reductive and simple about it, you can call all of the... Um, kind of all the intergalactic stuff, almost the Iron Man track, because that's where he went in Infinity War, and that's what kind of got us at least a main Marvel character into space like that. In theory, it should, you know, always deliver with me. I I love geopolitical nonsense, fictional geopolitical nonsense. Um, But the Falcon and the Winter Soldier really kind of uh, took the luster off it a bit, and I don't feel Wakanda forever does a lot to bring back the excitement for me other than uh, Wakanda acting more as a presence on the, on the geopolitical grand stage. Like I love the scene with Ramonda in the UN. Oh yeah. That was fun. Um, I like that little, uh, that little trick they pulled off in their vibranium lab stuff like that. I think maybe less is more when it comes to the geopolitics, when it just like these little, you know, kind of background scenes at the UN a little bit of CIA here and there. Um, I, I'm curious to see what it's like when they really go for it in Thunderbolts. And the Wakanda TV series. I mean, don't forget, like, elements of this are going to pay off there and and in Ironheart. So it does feel like part of this movie's, like, you know, the elements of it that feel a little overstuffed, I think, are just kind of like the industrial necessities of having to, to backdoor pilot two shows uh, in here as well. So I get it. Kirsty, remind me, are you a fellow Black Widow defender? Yeah, I like Black Widow, actually. Okay. Um, I rewatched it recently and I, I still enjoy it a lot. Um, but yeah, I just, I feel like that's a perfectly decent movie. Um, and especially the way phase four has gone, it's sort sort of risen to the top in a way. <laughs> it's green, yeah. the green has risen. Um, but, you know, that Nirvana song isn't any more digestible, no matter how many times <laughs> you're watching. Um, yeah, no, I, I do like it. And um, that's sort of the, the more spy stuff is definitely more up my street than um, the sort of uh, political stuff, if you know what I mean. What did everybody think of Ironheart and Riri Williams? She seemed good. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't get a lot of, a lot of her yeah she, she seemed good like just enough for me to tell that dominique thorne is great um and i definitely think that's somebody who can carry a series here's what so like i i, I feel like that character might contribute to some of my 
issues with the film overall. Not that I didn't like her. I liked that actress quite a bit. And I even liked the design of the Ironheart costume even more. I thought it looked cool as hell. And I actually really, really liked Ironheart uh, in the last act of the movie. Uh, thought she brought a lot to the table. You talk about shoehorning. It makes some sense here because she's a genius and it, it, they, they fold her into the plot nicely enough. Like it's not, it's not completely out of left field that this kid in Harvard would be involved in finding vibranium and then get swept up in the story. It doesn't completely like beggar belief. Um, it makes sense, but it is just kind of like another thing that you don't 100% need other than to, to serve as the back door of a pilot. I, I feel like you could have Ironheart or you could have the CIA subplot. You can't really have both. That's like a hat mm. on a hat. If we're talking about like this movie facing an uphill struggle anyway, and like knowing how difficult it was behind the scenes, knowing the unique environment they tried to make this in, knowing how much they had to, you know, use this almost as a eulogy for a beloved real life figure in like this big Marvel family. Just kind of like shoving a character in there as like a backdoor pilot just feels unnecessary. The way they introduced her really reminded me of, um, you know, uh, Peter Parker in Civil War as well. You know, they, they walk into a dorm room and sort of you're coming to wherever with us, you know, it's a, and, you know, sometimes we call that a, a callback or to a previous film. But when the MCU feels like it is repeating some of its, uh, beats at the moment especially in phase four um because they think well this has worked before this will work now um it, this becomes a fine line between callbacks and just yeah repetition and not enjoying the moment as much do you, do you think they made it clear enough she's from chicago i thought you could take my eyes off this enormous chicago flag in her room there's <laughs> like a bulls jersey hanging up and i'm like all right this is like, let's just pump the brakes on the set design a bit. <laughs> like, I know she's from Chicago. Yeah, but that's your, like, Cleveland uh, weird Midwestern <laughs> rivalry thing happening there, Alec. I don't know that that's, uh, I don't uh, know that that's like the way. My, that's my state and city flag fetish popping yeah. up. Again. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I grew up a Knicks fan in the 90s. I'm allergic to to Bulls memorabilia. Like, I get, I, I get like, you know, I start to shrink every time I see it. So, um, no, look, I thought she was great. I, I do get it, though. It, it's almost like what if they had, had tried to introduce Kamala Khan in Captain Marvel 2 instead of in her own show? So I'm I'm very much looking forward to Ironheart, and I have not I have not read a ton of Ironheart comics. Like I've read some, I've only read like some of the the, the Brian Michael Bendis comics, and apparently Ironheart gets better as a character, at, like as the years go on, and some other writers uh, get their hands on her. I'm looking forward to learning more about this character, and I'm definitely I think I think Dominique Thorne has has what it takes. You know, um, I mean, she holds her own with you know with a couple of like real powerhouse talents uh, on screen. And I, th I think it's great. I think the future is bright for this character. But I do kind of see the complaints here uh, as far as the movie trying to do too much. Uh, because again, would we have fully absorbed just how delightful Ms. Marvel is if you know, if the first time we meet her, it was because she's like phasing in and out of reality with carol danvers for example you know so i get it but don't forget like ryan cougar's company is also making the Ironheart show so there's all kinds of like industrial you know behind the scenes stuff at work here what do we think of shuri uh taking on the black panther mantle well if you recall um one of my big predictions for this movie is that nobody would become black panther i thought i, I was pretty smart i thought that was pretty cool of myself there um, but the, the film disagreed. <laughs> it, they, they kind of like teased it out for a bit because there's no heart-shaped herb. And I, I thought that's the direction they were trending in, which was like almost a meta commentary on what the, the film is going through itself. of like, how do you replace Black Panther, a.k.a. Chadwick Boseman? And I thought the answer was, you can't. I am a little disappointed that they didn't go in that route, not just because I thought I was right, because I'm frequently wrong, Um but that just makes more sense thematically to me. I feel like it would have been more mature to have just been like, we can't, there's no more 
Black Panther. Like we have to find this, the movie's called Wakanda forever. We don't necessarily need this and we can't do it again. Um, and even and then also just kind of on a practical perspective, I don't, I think it's hard to turn a character established as the lab person, you know, the one who puts on the headset and be like, get out of there, man. <laughs> like there are enemies on your six um, and then turn them into the person of action. Uh, that's just kind of a chat. Like you, you cast them for the first purpose. And then when the second purpose comes around, she just kind of feels like a little miscast for it. I don't know. Not a huge fan of Black Panther Shuri. Um, we have read comics where Shuri is Black Panther. So I was expecting this to happen. It seemed inevitable because, you know, they do often um, stay true to the comics in that way. Yeah, she was she was fine. I, I wonder what a third movie will bring us, whether um, it will be Shuri Black Panther or uh, whether they will indeed uh, do a third movie. I'm probably, you know, getting us into trouble here, but uh, initially she, she was on social media liking tweets that said that the movie should be cancelled right so oh, wow. maybe there's <laughs> so maybe i don't know if that's accurate but i think i read that somewhere um again if i'm talking out of my ass just please ignore me please just always <laughs> ignore me but um yeah maybe perhaps she felt that uh initially they shouldn't do this movie and uh, turned around on it but maybe a third one might be out of reach this does feel like the middle act of a trilogy to me, um, you know, whether that was intentional or unintentional. And and keep in mind, Ryan Coogler has not like confirmed involvement in a Black Panther three. Like I know nothing about plans for a Black Panther three. I have no insider information or anything like that. It is interesting to me that throughout the movie, Shuri has no interest. Like like Shuri's quest is not to become Black Panther, and Shuri also shows no interest in taking over the throne of Wakanda, which is why, you know, Mbako at the end of it, like, like challenging for the throne. And the implication is that he is going to be the ruler of Wakanda is both like amusing because he's getting what he wants, you know, um, but he's not doing it in opposition to what T'Challa's wishes would have been, or even what Shuri's wishes would have been. So I thought that was very clever. And because, you know, Shuri's ambivalence, like, you know, Shuri, of course, accepts the responsibility and embraces the responsibility and uses that to, you know, take on external threats to Wakanda. The door is open for her to pass that off to somebody else in that cast if if she so chooses if they make another movie i i genuinely do not know where they're going with this you know and if it seems like it's letitia's right letitia wright's role to to lose like it seems like if she wants to continue in it then she will continue in it it also seems like there's probably an equally as compelling story to be told about Shuri not wanting to be Black Panther, um, you know, just as Shuri clearly did not really want to be queen. And that doesn't mean that Shuri gets written out of the MCU. But again, uh, to, to quote Kirsty here, I am talking out of my ass. Um, <laughs> but I just thought it was interesting that it was not a traditional heroic journey where it's like Shuri is striving to you know, fill the, you know, fill the boots of her brother. Like it's something that is done out of necessity and, and the journey itself is difficult and means that she earns it. And she absolutely does in the course of that movie. I think this was, this was deliberate on a number of levels. One, because, you know, from a meta level, you're following, you're, you know, you're following Chadwick Boseman, which as we've discussed is impossible. Um, you know, but also I think it kind of, it reflects well on the character of Shuri as well and makes her, you know, a less traditional character in that situation. Does that make sense? Yeah. And when they had the little bit at the end with Mabaku uh, challenging the idea that a Wakanda TV series could be like a Mbaku led Wakanda you know, uh, that like I would watch it and I think that would be a, uh, a good shout. 
for that show if, if that is the case. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like I'm, I'm in for whatever, like the, the, anytime they want to, they want us to spend in Wakanda with, with the kind of like care and detail that gets put into that world. I'm here for it. Like this is the most well-developed corner of the MCU. You know, it's like, I want like, you know, I'm like looking in the windows of buildings in the background just because I want to see how, you know, how, how lived in this world feels. <laughs> Muslim just said, Okoye would love protecting him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I want to see those two arguing every week. I do too. I do too. So look, I know I'm surprised that the, that the post credits didn't hit as hard for the two of you as it did for me, because I, I sobbed. Uh, like I lost it for a second at, at that post-credit scene. And like the only other, the only other Marvel post-credit scene that ever affected me, not post-credit scene, the only other like Marvel movie ending that really affected me that way was, was Steven Peggy in Endgame. And like, this just like punched me in the chest for, for completely different reasons. You know, I mean, that kid's resemblance to Chadwick Boseman was, was noteworthy. I just thought it was sweet. It just felt like these stories never really end, but you know, in a way do our stories ever really end either, you know, and it, it got me. I guess for once I'm the softy as opposed to the jerk uh, on these shows. I don't disagree. It was lovely. Um, it's it's the perfect post credit scene for that movie. And I was so taken aback that there wasn't a second one, which I think, you know, in hindsight was definitely the right move. That's a, another, again, like another case, you think it would have gotten to me more because it's another case where real life humanity <laughs> wins out over the whims of like a corporate overlord. Like... The classy move not to go with the second post credit scene. I, I think at that point in the movie, I I had not been emotionally manipulated enough. Like I had not, it, not <laughs> it had not gotten through to me. Like I was still a little bit standoffish, still wondering if I liked that movie or not, still just kind of wrestling with it. I, I had too many shields up to really engage emotionally with that post credit scene. To be fair, I was a little bit distracted because I was going to go and have a Popeye's chicken afterwards <laughs> and not, not to pay any disrespect to the movie, but the, the, the power of the chicken was really, <laughs> I was so hungry. So maybe that was it. <laughs> I was really hangry and I just wanted to leave. So, so you got to be like me and house like a large popcorn before oh, the I trailers had the, I had the popcorn finished. but I was <laughs> <laughs> I was insatiable that day Mike what can yeah. I say anything else anything else we want to talk about today before we call it a night if not I think we should tell them what's coming up Mike oh yeah Kirsty why don't you tell them what's coming up on future okay. episodes of Marvel Stand so not next week because it's Thanksgiving week, but the week after we're going to be back to but, hold on. Hold on. Hey, I have to stop hey. you because there will be a Marvel standup next week. It just will not be a Marvel standup. <laughs> you will want to check all of the Den of Geek channels because I have an exclusive interview with the writers of Captain America, Sentinel, Sentinel of Liberty and Captain America symbol of truth. And it's awesome. And it's a riot. And if you want to know what's coming up in Captain America comics, which are really good right now, you're going to want to watch them. Okay. But after that, are you done? I'm done. I'm okay. done. So yeah, the, not next week. Uh, but the week after the live show returns, we're going to be going through, we're, we're going to, we have picked our best phase four moments, our favorite phase four moments. And we're going to be going through those live on air. Um, it's sure to be a disaster. So please <laughs> tune in. Uh, the week after that, we are going to do the reverse. We are going to go through our worst phase four moments. And uh, if you, if you don't feel like you're in a positive mood, not in a cheery mood, then uh, just skip on to the the worst moments. Um, our final show, live show of the year, will be the Marvel Standom annual holiday quiz. Last year, I was told that I made the questions too hard, and I ignored that this year, um, and just made them a, a lot harder. So we're going to have uh, a bunch of special guests uh, joining us as uh, contestants on the quiz. So please join us for that too. And somewhere during this, there will be another bonus episode of Marvel Standom as well, because I have an awesome interview with She-Hulk writer Cody Ziegler. 
except he is not talking about She-Hulk. He is talking about his delightful Spider-Punk comic and his brand new Miles Morales series. So we have enough Marvel standems to get you through the rest of the year. Three of them will be, will be live. One of them, Kirsty, will humiliate me with impossible questions. It's guaranteed. Uh, it is guaranteed. <laughs> An absolute flogging live on air. Please join us. With that ominous note, I think that is it. <laughs> For this episode of Marvel Standom, make sure you're subscribing to us wherever you are watching or listening right now. And do check out our live home at twitch.tv slash TV. But plot twist, we are going to be going live on YouTube and Facebook simultaneously, beginning with our next live episode technical difficulties notwithstanding so you will have more opportunities and more places where you can watch marvel standom live make sure you are following us at marvel standom on twitter and instagram so you can stay up to date on all of that drop us a line let us know your burning questions and what you want us to cover in upcoming episodes we are already planning the next season of marvel standom which will begin of course in january of 2023 if you came in late, you can watch this entire episode on TheNeek.com or at our YouTube home, Denny Geek US. And don't forget, you can check out past episodes there and also wherever you get your podcasts. Folks, if you really want to support this show, you should also go to denigeek.com slash magazine and subscribe to our print edition, $9.99 a year, and you will get at least four issues of the best entertainment and pop culture coverage that you can get in print. Every issue is a collector's item. Do not miss it. That money helps fund Marvel Standom, which we will continue bringing to you absolutely free and at the grace of our sponsors as we can find them. Thank you so much to Andrew Halley, the best producer in any corner of the multiverse. Thank you to Denny Geek Social Media Coordinator Lee Parham for keeping everyone in line in the comments and go follow our TikTok. That's at Denny Geek TV. Lee is doing great work there. Special shout out to Michael R. He makes the podcast version of this show all it can be. And folks, if you are only listening to this show as a podcast, you can also watch it as videos. What are you doing? But most of all, thank each and every one of you for watching, listening, following, and subscribing. This has been Marvel Standom on the Denny Network. Until next time, remember, folks, we stand together.